Well, good morning, Redeemer. It's nice to see you all. Well, as you could tell uh, from the reading this morning, um, <laughs> yeah, what can, <laughs> so many things, Cubby. Uh, I have not, uh, I'm still just putting my foot on the gas pedal. We are still going with Mark. Um, so I had the extra special treat of staying where I'm at in Mark and yet still making it a Christmas sermon. Uh, I, didn't, I didn't pause and, you know, turn to the first couple chapters of Luke and, and do a something on the text from that. We are in Mark chapter 12, uh, and I'm going to be talking today about verses 18 through 27. Before I do that, let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, for the miracle of the incarnation. Uh, There are many things that we do not understand. There are many things that we think we do. There are many things that we take for granted. We pray, Lord, this morning that as um, we open your word and that you graciously Uh, reveal yourself to us, show yourself to us, that we um, would not worry so much about our questions being answered, but that we would see you and know you um, and praise you and worship you uh, and even fall silent before you, Lord God, and and behold you in your your glory and your goodness and in your self-revelation that we might draw nearer to you. We know that you are the God who is with us, the God who is present. We pray, Lord God, as we worship you this morning, that we would come to know that deeper and um, more fully this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, I'm fond of asking occasionally, can we disprove God or Christianity by asking questions that God himself cannot answer? Can we answer questions of God or about the faith of, of, Christian, of Christianity and dis, thereby disprove it? Here's an example of such a question. Can God create a rock so large that he cannot lift it? If he can do anything, could he create a rock that he himself cannot lift? Well, in this question, right, if he can't, then he is very limited. And he is not the God that we think he is. If he can make a rock that he can't lift, likewise, he's powerless. Right? This is what this question seeks to prove. One way or the other, that God isn't as powerful as we think he is. Now, C.S. Lewis commented on this line of reasoning in his book, A Grief Observed. And this is what he said. Can a mortal ask questions which God finds unanswerable? Quite easily, I should think, all nonsense questions are, in fact, unanswerable. How many hours are there in a mile? Is yellow square or round? Probably half the questions that we ask, half of our great theological and metaphysical problems are like that. Heaven will solve our problems, but not, I think, by showing us the subtle reconciliations between all of our apparently contradictory notions. The notions will all be knocked out from under our feet. We shall see that there never was any problem at all. Our notions, our premises, our facts will all be knocked out from under our feet. Our wisdom literature teaches us this. This is quite clearly what Job is about. The characters in Job ask a ton of questions. It is a book of questions. Job asks a lot of questions. His friends ask a lot of questions. And a lot of them are 
the, <laughs> the kind of questions you still find discussed at Stanford in the philosophy department. They are big questions, the big questions. And as I've said before, God doesn't answer them. He doesn't even try. He doesn't even really acknowledge that they have asked questions. He just shows up in a whirlwind in chapter 38 and shows himself. And Job finally, finally gets it and says, I will just stand here then and I will be quiet. And, and, and this is what God's revelation is like. God does not reveal himself <laughs> to, to fulfill all of your curiosities. Right? Why did that happen? Why did this happen? Why, why did a 25-year-old police officer responding to a call yesterday morning accidentally drive off the road and slam into a building and die instantaneously? Why did that happen? Right? And that's just something in our own neighborhood. Things in our own lives. We ask these questions. And what we have to understand is that God is not going to sit us down once we get to heaven and say, okay, ask away. Okay, now is the time. Let's reconcile all those facts that you didn't know so that your curiosity will finally be satiated. No, he shows up out of a whirlwind, right? In the midst of our lives, what does he do? He shows up like a whirlwind and just reveals himself. Many of our deepest questions are shown to be meaningless in the presence of God himself. He transcends our logic, our experience, and our understanding. Now, what I don't want to do is make it seem like I think questions are sinful. Questions and inquiries into the deep things of God, his creation and revelation are not sinful, inappropriate, or even uncommon. But what we have to understand is, is where they stand in our lives. What is the point of the deep questions? What are we looking for when we're asking them? What are we hoping to accomplish? What are we hoping to understand? In fact, we, um, we were made to ask questions. Ecclesiastes 3.11, this is what it says. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. All of you right now are sitting there, right? And, and saved or unsaved, every person who is sitting here today has eternity in their hearts. And you feel this, don't you? Don't you feel like your whole life you've been trying to fill that hole in your heart? There's this gap, right? And you want to fill it. Let's put more stuff into it. Let's put more money into it. Let's put more people into it. Let's go to Stanford and the metaphysical department, and let's ask the big questions, and let's fill up this eternity that is inside of us. Why would he do such a thing? Why would he make us and put eternity in our hearts? This idea that we're yearning for something that doesn't exist in this world. Can anyone in this find something eternal in this world? Can anyone build a building that's eternal? No, we will all, not even 100 years from now, right? Our grandkids most likely won't even really remember us that much. And, 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 and yet, we desire, we're seeking, we're pursuing this eternity. Man was made with this orientation toward the eternal, which is expressed through questions of, of eternity that are very difficult to answer. How is God incarnate? How can the God, right, who, who fills all things, lay in a manger? How can three persons be one being? I'm still working on that one. I haven't gotten an answer. I just know it's true. It's one of the many things where I say it's just true. <laughs> Believe it. How is a man and woman together the image of God? 
If, if a woman and a man together are the image of God, what does that tell us about the image of God? Right? God's not a man, he's not a woman, but it requires a man and a woman to be his image. How far does space go? Why are no two snowflakes the same and how could we ever prove it? How do they really know that fact? I'm very skeptical of this fact because I, I immediately am like, okay, show me the, all of them. Why does the, this is for, for modern people, why does the Bible teach us that the earth is at the center of the universe and yet through the Copernican model that is current now, it's clearly not? Or is it? <laughs> right? Then I, I don't know what to say. It's one of those things. I, I, in this case, I can't even say believe it or not. I just say, okay, well, okay. I'm waiting for the whirlwind to show up so to distract everyone from the fact that I can't answer that question. As a parent, I, I'm, I'm always begging for the, for the whirlwind to show up to distract people from the fact that I don't know the answer to the question. Matthew chapter 7, verse 7 through 8. This is Jesus himself. Think about what he's saying here. He understands that he has put eternity in our hearts. He says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. He understands that we're pursuing. He understands that we're questioning. He understands that we have this eternity in our hearts, and we're trying to fill it with something. But what Job and his friends had forgotten is that they were not studying a leaf. They're not studying some interesting metaphysical question. There are limits to what we can discover or even comprehend about God. He, in fact, controls how much of himself is really revealed. Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. That we may do all the words of this law. See, the problem is we don't really understand what we're supposed to be asking about and what we're supposed to do once we get the answers. Right? We just have this eternity in our hearts that's looking for something to engage, looking for something to fulfill it. And, and what we don't understand is that really what it's looking for is a person, the eternal one. And, and the, the revelation that we receive is about that eternal one and not just knowledge, but that we can obey, do all the words of this law. This is where people get, go wrong with the metaphysical questions. This is where the eternity in our hearts leads us astray. We can ask questions that God can't answer, and he won't care to answer. What, what, what happens is people start to get into asking these deep questions, and the answer is a person and, and, and what his requirements, and that's what people don't like. That's what they don't like. And, and I mean... <laughs> Greek, myth, uh, Greek philosophy is a, is a great example of this. Uh, Jared and I have talked about this before. I, I, he, he told me this, and I believe this is true. Plato, Plato would walk in and see the triune God and say, oh, okay, that's, I get it. I was so close. I was so close. He's like, this makes sense. See, but, but that's, you go and you read Plato, he's kind of dancing around it the whole time. And, and as we, you know, Plato, everyone's like, what is he, it's Christmas, why is he talking about Plato? Well, Ideas have consequences. <coughs> there is Plato, and as they say, everything else in philosophy is a footnote. 
Okay, and here's Plato dancing around, and he didn't want to deal with the fact that there is an unmoved mover. There is an eternal one. And what that person requires of us, then, is the way that we should live our lives. This is what just escapes people. There is a, right, all knowledge is moral. There is no such thing as immoral or amoral knowledge. All knowledge is moral. So when we're pursuing our inquiries, when we're pursuing the answers to our big questions, the point is behavior. The point is not just what we know, but what we do. Romans 1, 21 through 22. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. They know God, but what don't they do? They don't honor him and they don't give him thanks. Knowing isn't enough. It's, it's, <laughs> it's what you do with the knowledge. Feudal thinking and foolish hearts are a moral problem. Inquiry into the nature of the universe, into metaphysics and ethics and art and symbiotics and medicine, all human inquiry is moral, and it should lead to what you do or don't do. Just one example. Medical knowledge that is ungrateful and not God-honoring results in what? Sex realignment therapy is what they're now calling it. Sex realignment therapy. What in the what? That's the very fancy way of saying we give drugs to little boys to make them little girls. And then we start mutilating them. Right? Think of what we can do with science. Think of what we can do with medicine. I, I mean, <laughs> my mom went in for an operation the other day and it took like 45 minutes. And three years ago, or three, 30 years ago, it probably would have killed her. Right? Imagine what we can do with medicine. And we use it. <laughs> for sex reassignment therapy. Right? Knowledge itself is a dangerous and wicked and horrible thing, right? It, 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 because it's not immoral. There, are, it, there is morality to it. If it doesn't have a compass that points north, if it doesn't have an orientation towards God, the knowledge is a very dangerous thing. Psalm 111, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. Right? Knowledge has to grow up to become wisdom. And the only way to do that is if its orientation is towards God. Now, how? Right? This is what God wants from us. He wants us to grow up. He wants us to be wise. He's put eternity into our hearts. So how does he deal with it? Right? How does he deal with it? 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 through 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. He does it through his word. This is how he does it. What, what, what are the questions in your heart about eternity? Turn to the word of God. What does it mean that we're supposed to honor him? What does it mean that we're supposed to glorify him and supposed to thank him? Turn to the word of God. Right? I have all this <laughs> medical knowledge. What am I supposed to do with it? Turn to the word of God. What does it say? Well, God is the God of, li- of the living. He is a God of life, not death. 
but we can't lose the forest for the trees. The Bible is not an ethical manual. It is not a life manual. It is not literature. It's not impersonal. John chapter 5, verse 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, Jesus says. John 17, 3, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. What is the orientation of your knowledge? The, those deep questions that you have, what, why do you want them answered? What is the point? Is it so that you can know him better or so that you can have your curiosity satisfied? Jesus Christ is the life of the world, and so knowing the scriptures is knowing him, is knowing his power. Now, what we do now is we turn to Mark. Right? This, is, <laughs> this is a very long, somewhat philosophical introduction to this story because what Jesus is doing here is he's not just battling the religious leaders of Judaism in the temple, he is fighting for the temple itself. And what I want us to understand is not just what he's saying, but how he's saying it, what he's doing, and, and the result of it in the end. It, this isn't just one of those, well, here's what he said, go forth and do X, Y, or Z. Jesus, at this point, is showing us how to live the Christian life. He's showing us what the point of life is at all. As Jesus answers the questions of the Sadducees, he answers questions that you and I still have, that every Christian has had, that every human has had. And as he does so, Jesus teaches us how to ask questions and how and where to seek the answers to those questions. Truth is not disembodied. There is a corresponding reality to all truth. If you know something that is true and you cannot find a corresponding reality in the created world, then it's not true. Think about that for a second. If you can't find the truth in reality, it's not true. God is. Look at Jesus. God loves. Look at the cross. Jesus said he was the bread, the door, the shepherd. He's not a disembodied metaphysical reality. You find him in reality, right? This is what I love about <laughs> the creed. They mention Pontius Pilate. It's historical. Jesus Christ, the God of the universe, had an address. He had a yearbook. <laughs> it doesn't get more human than that. What we need to learn is how to ask the questions, how to receive the answers, and how to grab hold of the truth that is revealed to us so that we, we can be moral and upright people. Right? Just sitting around thinking deep thoughts is not the Christian life. Believing and being, being and becoming. We need our faith to cease to be mere, ac mere actions and see the deep truth behind what we do and why we do it. We need to put flesh on those truths that we affirm with our mouths. Sitting here, some of you do things and you don't really know why you do them. What's the truth behind it? Some of you know a great deal and your life doesn't reflect what you know. Right? And what we have to remember is what Jesus said. To those who much is given, much is expected. Mark chapter 12, verses 18 through 23. The Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. 
There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise, and all the way down to the seventh. Last of all, the woman also died. So in the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife shall she be? For the seven had her as his wife. And then they drop the mic because they think they got Jesus now. How do you like them apples, Jesus? Huh? You believe in this resurrection? How's that work out? Because they can't possibly imagine (laughs) an existence that doesn't have marriage and procreation at the center of it. I mean, this is a question they've asked. It's like, the can God make a rock big enough he can't lift? They think they've got him with this question. <laughs> Jesus, is, Jesus doesn't care now. Whatever. They're going to kill him. He knows it. It's time to go big. And so he says, you people don't know the scriptures and you don't know God. And that's always something to be considered when we have questions like what the Sadducees have. So there's a couple of things to explain here. Who are these people? This is, the, the, this is the first time that they're mentioned. And what's very odd about them is that the only reason we know anything about them at all is not because they've left us their writings, but because their enemies have left writings about them. So this group is actually, it's very difficult to really know what's going on with them because the only people who, who we still have knowledge about them didn't like them. So because... <laughs> These were the guys that were leading the fight against Rome, and much of what they had was destroyed, and so there's not a lot of history on them. The few things that we do know is that they were Torah fundamentalists. They they were so conservative that the only books books of the Bible that they thought were legitimate were the five books of Moses. And so what's behind this here is that they come to Jesus and and the Pharisees, the other group, believe in the resurrection and their proof texts for it are all found later on in other portions of scripture outside of the Torah. So they only believe in the Torah. So they open the Torah and they say, listen, there's nothing in here about resurrection. There's nothing in here about a life after death. And so it's extra biblical and it's nonsense and we don't believe it. And let me show you how nonsensical it is. If a, right? And then they bring up what they call Leverite marriage. What is this Leverite marriage? <laughs> well, we heard a little bit of it this morning. This is the theory that, or the law that God had, which I want to just point out that the story read for us today was from Genesis chapter 38 before the law was in place. So there's something about this that the people of God have always understood. A woman is married to a man. That man dies. There's no child. Who's going to carry on his name? Who's going to carry his name on? We can't, he's a, he's a son of God. We can't just have his name disappear. So the, the wife has a duty. The brother has a duty to provide an heir for this person. Now, is that pleasurable? Does that sound fun? Does that sound awkward? Yeah, my wife said if they still had this role, we probably wouldn't have gotten married. <laughs> and I agree with her. That would <laughs> You should move along, lady. Now, there is a ton here that we don't understand. Why is it so important to have an heir? I mean, I've said this before. You read the Genesis, and you're like, these women have, like, no self-respect. Like, all they want is a baby. And they're willing to do just about anything and have their husband do just about anything in order to provide a baby. And so you run into some cultural problems when you're reading this. Tamar, one of my favorite characters in all of Scripture, 
has no shame. She knows what her responsibility is, and she's willing to sleep with her father-in-law in order to get it done. She's willing to dress like a prostitute. She's willing to throw all of her respectability out the window in order to fulfill what she thinks is her responsibility. Because, and why? Because God is the God of the living. He's the God of the living. And so if he's the God of the living, and he's willing to do everything that, right, he's willing to do what he needs to do to, to keep life going, Tamar understands the kind of God she serves. Our responsibility is to, to be fruitful and to multiply. And so she cares more about the law of God, the word of God, the people of God, than she does about her own respectability. Later, this is actually, this is actually in the law. This is something that you're supposed to do because the land was given to Israel, and what we can't have, they, they don't want it being split up and, and you know, getting smaller and smaller and smaller allotments. All the heirs in Israel need to maintain the things that God has given them. So if a man dies and he doesn't have a child, his brothers and his, and his widow have to provide one. This is what Ruth is all about. right? The ladies, what happens to them? They don't have husbands anymore. They don't have kids. And they're destitute. And they come back to Israel. And the whole story is, is somebody going to redeem these women? Now, Here's a good question. Here's one of those questions that are hard to answer. What is your relationship to your spouse when you go to heaven? It terrifies me a little bit to think that my wife is just going to be another angelic-looking, well, she's angelic-looking now, (laughs) that her and I are just going to be like hanging around up in heaven like, oh, hey, you, haven't seen you in a while. Right? Because I'm with the Sadducees. It's kind of hard to understand. And, right? And I have questions like this too. Because I have a dear friend. She was widowed. She married again. It's hard to imagine that she's not going to be with her first husband in heaven. And so I don't really know. And, and in, in this particular case, I don't know. Except I know this marriage and procreation is an image of the gospel that is fulfilled in Jesus Christ and his bride, the church. And Jesus keeps saying this, right? He says, the family that matters is the family that does the will of God. Right? If you've got to throw off your husband, if you've got to throw off your parents, your kids, anybody, in order to be faithful to God, that's the relationship that matters most. So my only answer to that question, will we be married in heaven, is I don't think we will care anymore. I think we will get there and our eyes will be so full of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ that we won't care. And, and I can't, I mean, <laughs> my poor son worries a lot, right? Are we going to be, are we going to eat steak there? I'm, I'm worried about that too, actually. <laughs> right? Will they still make Islay scotch in heaven? <laughs> I don't know, right? And, and I'm saying, listen, we love these things. We love these things. And we have to understand that God is so amazing that when we get there, we won't, these questions will fall away. We won't care. This is one of those moments. I'm waiting for a whirlwind to distract from the fact I don't know how to answer this question. Right? We'll, we'll all die. We'll go into the ground. We'll come back up. There will be the whirlwind, and these questions will be answered. Do not fall into this trap, though, to think that this world, as good as it is, is going to be in any way, shape, or form equal to or better than the world in which we are going to. 
right? And if this world is this good, how much better might the next world be? But this is how the Sadducees are. They can't see beyond their own creaturely comforts. They can't see beyond their own little lives. And so they use the law of God in order to try to throw Jesus off to disprove what his authority and the authority of the Pharisees. Now, there's a play on words here. In verses 25 and 26, Jesus uses this word for raised up. He, he refers to the resurrection. And in this story with the Sadducees, they say, he, right, the Levite is supposed to take his, his uh, sister-in-law after the husband has died and raise up a child for them. And this goes back to this idea. The whole idea about the Levite marriage, right, if you go and you look in verses 18 through 23, you see it. A man's brother leaves no child. The man must take the widow and raise up offspring. Mark is playing with the words here. He's playing with various words of, of resurrection. And he's making a point about the fact that God is a God who brings life out of death. He's so into bringing life out of death that he provides for men who, who, who die before they have children. This is how much he cares about life. And so in the question that the Sadducees are, are, are bringing to Jesus, they don't understand, they clearly don't understand the God that they serve. Right? They're contradicting themselves even in that God cares about bringing life out of death. This is why he had this law in the Old Testament. What kind of God is a God that cares so much about you and your inheritance that he's willing to make a law like a Levite law? What does, right? Does, <laughs> ladies, does he care more about your comfort? Right? Can you imagine all those years you sat next to your brother-in-law at Thanksgiving dinner and then all of a sudden you guys got to produce an heir for your dead husband? Awkward. That's what I call that. But does he care? Why? Why does he care more about bringing life into this world than the awkwardness of this? And there, I'm just going to leave that there. Talking about asking questions that are hard to answer. This is Jesus' answer to them, right? It's, it's clear that they don't know what they're talking about. Mark chapter 12, verses 24 through 25. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason that you are wrong because you neither know the Scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. You just don't know what you're talking about because you don't know the, the, the Bible and you don't know God. The root of their error is the failure to understand the tenor of Scripture or the power of God. When properly understood, the passage cited in verse 26 bears eloquent witness to the truth of the resurrection. God's power is revealed in his ability to vanquish death and bestow the gift of life. Right? He will make a way for life. He'll do it. They can only conceive of a world organized by marriage, by family, and continuity through procreation. They can't see beyond this world. In the resurrection, marriage will come to an end as we know it, and we won't care. We won't care. Now, note what Jesus says here. They don't know the content or the proper interpretation of their own Bible, and they don't know God. Should they? Right? <laughs> These are leaders in the temple. These are not unbelievers. These are questions he's sitting there discussing with kids 
from Covenant Theological Institute. Christian readers need to realize that such deficiencies are not limited to the Sadducees or first, first century Jews. Okay, This is one of those stories where we're reading it and we think you guys are idiots. I, I'm, I'm surprised Jesus put up with you at all when you don't realize that you're the idiot. I'm sorry. Right? We sit, in our, we sit in our ca- at our couches, at our kitchen tables, and we ask questions like this. In our minds, we think, I mean, come on, God, what are you doing? If, 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 right? if, if your word is true, if this Levi marriage is true, then how does that work out once we're all raised from the dead? And we waste our time with questions like this. Mark chapter 12, verse 26 through 27. And as for the dead being raised, Jesus goes on, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Jesus goes back to a founding text of Israel's history. Yahweh's appearance to Moses at the burning bush. Now, what's funny here is he doesn't go, he goes to the Torah because the Torah is the only thing that they believe in. And they think, right, they've searched it from end to end for life. This is what he says in, in John that I quoted earlier. They're looking for eternal life in the scriptures. And what they don't understand is that eternal life is a person. And your orientation to that person determines whether you have eternal life or do not. So he turns to their, <laughs> to their book. And I'm sorry, how many of you guys have read the burning bush section? He calls it the burning bush part, is essentially what he says in Greek. And the reason is is because they didn't have chapters and verses back then. But we've all read this. Did you know that it was about the resurrection? No, I didn't know that. I thought it was about Moses going to Egypt and dealing with Pharaoh. I thought it was about God revealing himself to Moses because it was time for Israel to rise up. I thought this had a lot to do with a lot of other things. I had no idea that it was teaching about the resurrection. Neither did the Sadducees. Neither did the Pharisees. And this is the kind of thing that Jesus does all the time. With the question about the Leverite marriage still echoing in the background, Jesus reminds the Sadducees that they claim to serve the God of Abraham, the God who gave Abraham a son, when he was as good as dead, it says in Romans. Abraham is so old, he's as good as dead. His wife's womb is dead. And out of that death, what does he bring? The son of promise. So you got, right? This is Jesus. Hey, Sadducees, you guys love Torah. Let's talk some Torah. Let's do it. Let's talk about the kind of God we serve. Oh, he's the God of Abraham, that dead guy with the dead wife, with the dead womb from which he brought life. What kind of God is he? In denying the resurrection, the Sadducees are denying their very confession. Right? If God is the God who doesn't bring life out of death, then who are they and what are they and where do they come from? In the Exodus passage, by designating himself the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the context of his self-revelation to Moses, the Lord presented himself as the God who protects, the God who upholds. What happened to those three characters back in Genesis? Were they, did they persevere? Were they carried through? Were they protected? Were they blessed? And who was doing it all along? God. And God doesn't say in the burning bush, I was the God of the, these men. He says, I am the God of these men. 
Because what kind of God would he be if he carries them all the way through their lives and then he gets to the grave and he says, well, you know, this is as far as I can take you. I can go no further. What kind of God is that? That sounds like he just made a rock he can't lift. In this created world, death doesn't stop him from being our God. Because he can, right? He continues to uphold, he continues to protect, he continues to sustain after the breath has left our lungs. And then what is, right? He's, we get separated from this body, and that's a mystery, and he carries the real us, the internal us, this internal person, he carries that person all the way through to the resurrection. He doesn't say, well, good luck. I'll see you in a few thousand years, maybe. He has a place for them to go when they die, to wait, to be with him. Now, this is what Jesus is doing. He, he's turning to a portion of scripture, and he's showing by logic and inference truths about God. It's not as simple as, oh, turn to chapter 3, verse 3, and this is the clear stating of the Lord God. That's what the Sadducees want. That's what you want. That's what I want. Turn to the Bible and tell me what i got to do. Right? Couldn't it all be like the Ten Commandments? The Ten Commandments are pretty straightforward. Don't do this stuff. You're like, awesome. You're like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. There's other things I have to learn about God now that I have to actually sit down and open the Scriptures and think about it? Like, that's a joke, Right? Do you know how big this book is? Because, but we want the manual. We want the ten steps. We want the straightforward. And, and at this point, why do I have to read it all? Why can't it just be pictures? <laughs> That's why I like kid Bibles. Oh, okay. Cool. Look at what Jesus is doing here. I, I like that. That's nice. It's straightforward. Jesus <laughs> takes the word of God and he shows. It's not there in black and white. It's something that has to be worked out. It's something that has to be dug up. It's something that has to be, right? He has to dismantle it and put it back together. The revelation of God at the burning bush does not explicitly teach anything regarding the resurrection, but within the episode, there are implicit truths to be drawn out. Paul does the same kind of thing. Remember that time where Paul says, don't muzzle the ox when it's treading out the grain? Yeah, apparently, apparently that's about paying your pastor. And, I, and that's the point that Paul makes. But I go back and I look at, at it and I'm like, I don't, this always throws me. Paul, I'm not sure that's what he meant. And Paul's like, yeah, well, that's what God meant. Right? There was somebody else there writing it. And, and the, the, Moses sits down, he writes these books, and is there more there than he understands? Uh, yes. Is there more there than his contemporaries understood? Yes. And then you get to Paul and you're like, Paul, you're making this look too hard. Because, I mean, like at one point you're like, the Old Testament almost could be about anything. And then the, now, now I'm nervous, right? Now I'm nervous. Now if this is what we're going to do, okay, fine, 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 fine. Let's go to Acts. You guys want to show that you're real Christians? I'll get a bag of snakes and if you hold these poisonous snakes, apparently this is what happens in Acts. And if we can turn whatever we want into whatever we want, I'm going to make you hold the snakes. And if you get bit by the snakes and you don't die, you're real Christians. That's what happened to Paul. Jesus says, actually, you will handle snakes and poison won't hurt you. 
the, the principle that Jesus is using here is called good and necessary consequence. That's what it's called, right? Now, if, <laughs> if I'm reading Acts and I say, okay, we're all going to hold snakes now, is that good? And is that necessary? No. But if you go back and you read Exodus and it says, I am the God of Abraham and Isaac, and what is good and what is necessary about that? That God doesn't give up on people when they die. That he doesn't just leave them. That he continues to be their God. That because if you're associated with him, you, you are the living. That's what makes you the living. Now, this is what mandates systematic theology. This is how you get to systematic theology. You go into the scriptures and you think, okay, what, it, what does it say that's not just right there on the surface? And you got R.C. Sproul sweating all those years trying to figure out what it means. And he compiles all of his ideas. And then you got, who else over here? You got Doug Wilson. He's trying to figure out the same thing. And then we compare notes. That sounds a lot harder than God just telling us exactly what we need, isn't it? But he's put eternity in our hearts. He wants us to, to work these things out. He wants you to show brotherly love to some... Have you ever, has this ever happened? Somebody gets their Bible out and they start explaining something to you and you think you're an idiot. I think this like 50 times a week. And then I come to realize like two weeks later, the guy was right. Has that ever happened to you? Because, <laughs> yes, thank you, it happens. Because it's not easy. Obeying God is not easy. He is not an easy God to understand. He is not a God who just shows up at your front door and says, okay, this is me. Here's the 10 things you need to do. I'll see you at the resurrection. He comes to us in ways that we don't understand, through events that we don't understand. He comes to us through a book that's very hard to understand. And what it requires is more than a devotional reading. What it requires is us sitting down and digging into it. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The triune God is the God of the living, and he provides living food. Enlivening food, food that makes us healthy and strong as we consume it. Matthew 4.4, 4, but he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. There is in you something eternal, and it's hungry, and you're either feeding it or you're not. You're either giving it what it requires or you're not. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 to 13, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from its sight. All are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. It's living. Right? right? You do not serve an absentee landlord. He is the living God. He has given you the living word to make you alive. Are you full of life? Are you full of life? Are you full of his life? Why not? Why not? The word of God is food, it is a scalpel, it is active, it isn't merely read, it indwells, it shapes, it carves, it cuts, it molds, it makes things. It makes Christians. You can't just sit around, <laughs> turn on your one verse a day, and think that you're going to become 
someone who is living and breathing and dying in the image of Jesus Christ. It's not that simple. General revelation provides the basis of the vast range of human knowledge. The Bible is complete for the purpose for which it is given. This is one of those things I want to make sure we come back around. I cannot open it up and figure out how to do heart surgery. I cannot open it up and and have a blueprint for how to build a house. That would be kind of nice, right? It doesn't contain all human knowledge. What does it contain? It contains everything you need to know on how to serve God and love him, how to to live in the image of him, to live his life. Our problem is very simple. We think that this is a dead book. And so we become dead people. But we don't serve the God of the dead. We serve the God of the living. And if he's the God of the living, then he is with us. He's here. He's present. And how is he present? He's present in worship. He's present in the word of God. He's present in prayer. Right? Emmanuel wasn't a name he had in the first century. It's his name. It's his name now. (laughs) It's what he's doing now. Right? And, and, And we take the easy way. Let's go back and look at the story in chapter 38 of Genesis. This is a woman who will disguise herself as a whore. She will dress like a prostitute to deceive her father-in-law. Why? For her own pleasure? No, to provide her dead husband with a son. Does that sound selfish to you? No, but when we heard this, right, this woman is willing to dress like a prostitute in order to trick her father-in-law into sleeping with her? That sounds like some sort of trashy daytime television, doesn't it? And all of us are like, I, I don't want, these are our people. These are our people. I don't think so. I don't think these are our people. That's in the Old Testament. We're going to just leave that there. I don't really understand it. But what does Judah call her? Righteous. Judah calls her righteous. And the child that she has, Perez, who is that? He is an ancestor of Jesus Christ. It says right in Luke, this is Jesus' family? I'm embarrassed for him. (laughs) Right? I thought my family was bad. Perez is included in Jesus' genealogy because God wants you to remember this sordid tale and how far Tamar was willing to go to obey God's law. She knew that God is the God of the living, that God cares about our, our descendants and the perpetuation not just of his name but of our name. Tamar honored God more than her perceived virtue, more than her reputation, more than her well-being, more than her standing in the community. They think she's a whore. They think she did this through immorality. And what would have happened if she sent those things up to Judah and Judah would have just said, oh, I'm just going to hide these over here. Nobody needs to know about this. Next thing you know, you burn her. She risked everything. And, and would you risk what she risked to do what she did? No, because it's very hard to understand why she did what she did was moral at all. Why? Because we open our book and we go to Ephesians and we read about the fact that we're going to inherit eternal life and we leave it at that. And that's the problem. She 
She couldn't care less about her reputation. She picked up her cross and she followed Jesus. And that statement is confusing to you because it's a long time before Jesus was born. But that's because we don't understand this book. Jesus says, Abraham saw my day and he rejoiced. Well, what does that mean? Tamar serves the living God. And we don't want anything to do with her because she's embarrassing and because her her way of life does not make sense to us. And what it reveals isn't how tawdry she is, but how tawdry we are. This is who God honors, right? We know her name. This is the family from which he brought the Messiah of the world. And we're embarrassed by this book, and we're embarrassed by the people in it. God gives us details that are stunning if you are willing to dig for them and wrestle with what they really mean. And that's not easy. It's easy to sit here. <laughs> it's easy to sing songs. It's, e- it's easy to write tie checks. It's easy to own Bibles. It's easy. But what's not easy is sitting down and figuring out that this is your, these are your people. And what does that mean then? Right? What kind of guy is Judah? He's got to allow, right? The men aren't doing what they're supposed to do. And look at the depths that the women have to go in order to fulfill the word of God. Does that sound familiar at all? Sounds pretty modern. Sounds like what we got going on now, right? Why are there so many women trying to fill pulpits? Because there are already women filling pulpits. I'm just going to say that. Think about that for a moment, right? Oh, they let these effeminate guys do it. Why don't we just let the females do it? Long before there were men participating in women's sports, there were women participating in men's sports because we let them. Because we don't, know how to, we don't know how to argue with them. We know Priscilla explained the gospel to this guy one time in Acts, so of course I'm going to be a bishop now, says the woman. Oh, okay. Because we don't know what to say. We have hard questions that have hard answers, and so we stop up our ears. Right? We like the twinkly lights. We like the trees. We like the presents. I'm a big fan of cocoa. This time of year, we're just, right? Let's celebrate. Let's have all this stuff. What is all of this stuff about? At the center of this story, in which cocoa is a major part in my life, right? you got to have the cocoa, actually. But it's about more than the cocoa, isn't it? Right? God's people is Perez. God's people is Tamar. And, and, and this, is, this is how I'm going to close this. This is what C.S. Lewis said in his book, uh, his radio address, Four Loves. Think about this. The most animal and self-regarding of all of our appetites has been chosen to become the vehicle of our most strictly commanded communion with God. Your most basic Animal desires have become the most intimate, right? The vehicle to have communion with God because God says, take this and eat it. Take this and drink it. Is there something more fundamental to us than eating and drinking? And at the heart of the Christian faith is a God who says, take, eat, take, drink. He seems to descend deepest into nature when he intends to lift us highest. Blood and guts and glands and genes and things of that sort do not repel Jesus Christ. Right? Did Jesus Christ sweat blood when he was going to go and eat at the tax collector's house? Did that stress him out? 
Think about that. What was the difficulty that Jesus had in this world? It was dying on the cross, <laughs> being separated from the Father, right? We, we don't take that very seriously, but we sure sweat some blood and tears when we got to go and hang out with people like tax collectors. What does that reveal about us? He's stressing over the fact that he's got to be separated from the Father, and he goes and he hangs out with all kinds of tawdry, scandalous people because that part's not hard for him. It's what he's always done. It's the God he's always been. It's the God that he still is because he's the living God. Do you think that the lowest that the Lord God ever descended was the manger? Do you think the most scandalous thing he ever did was on the cross? No, because he descended on you. That's as low as it gets. And that, that is what Paul understood. That is what made him so ferocious. The manger was not the lowest point in Jesus', <laughs> Jesus is descending. You are. I am. We are. And until we understand that, until we really get, right, until there is a corresponding reality to that truth, we're just living a lie. We're just living a lie. He is the God of the living. He is the God of the scandalous and the tawdry. He is the God of fools. He is the God of the worthless. He is the God, right, of the, of the marginalized. That means you, me, us. This is the Christmas story. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. There was, there was a place lower than the manger. And thank God he kept going down. Because where would we be without him? Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your son. We thank you, Lord God, for these difficult um, subject matter. We pray, Lord God, that you would give us a, a desire to know you better to open your word, to wrestle with it like um, our Father wrestled with you. We pray, Lord God, that you would have mercy on us, that you would delight our hearts in the things that we sing and the things that we read and in all the things that we enjoy this, this Christmas. We pray, Lord God, that we would understand what is at the heart and center of it and how humiliating it is and how wonderful it is. I pray, Lord God, that you would go before us, that you would protect us, and that you would fill this week of celebration for us with joy, with overflowing gratitude, and with humility. Amen.